0: All right, listeners, welcome to episode 83 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sittman, your podcast co host, and I'm here as always with my great friend, Sam Etherbell. Hi, Matt. Hey, Sam. My voice almost cracked there for some reason. (laughs) My voice sounds bad. (laughs) It's cold season here in New York. Yeah. How are you doing today, Sam? Well, I'm all right. Excited for
1: this episode. Good, meaty, meat and potato style. not your Enemy episode.
0: That's right. Pull up a chair, friends, because uh, <laughs> this was, a, as you said, Sam, a meaty episode, and it was about a meaty book, which is just out, November 14th, Jennifer Burns' big biography of Milton Friedman. It's called Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. It clocks in right around 500 pages. So compared to the J. Edgar Hoover bio of Beverly Gages, you know, this is a comparatively lighter read. But <laughs> for those who don't know Jennifer, I remember I was in grad school, I think, when her first book came out, which was on Ayn Rand. It's called Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. So this book on Friedman of hers that's just out, it's kind of a continuation of her biographical explorations of the American right and specifically more libertarian figures on the right. And of course, she's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where Friedman's papers are, and an associate professor of history at Stanford University. And as our listeners will soon hear, uh, very generous and intelligent guest who I was so impressed with just the synthesis and how much material she had mastered to write this book. Absolutely. I learned a lot about economics, especially the University of Chicago, their economics department around the time of the Great Depression, it was a little more complicated and nuanced than you might guess. Yeah, I think it's probably worth saying. I think this episode would pair really
1: well for listeners, especially newer listeners, with an episode we did a long time ago with Marshall Steinbaum. It's called Windbag City, and it's about the Chicago school of economics and the law and economics program in the law school at University of Chicago. And that's, if any listeners know Marshall, it's a very withering takedown of sort of Friedman and Friedmanite thought, which is not really what this episode is. This is much more kind of in the style of, let's get a sense of who this person was and what he thought. And every once in a while, sort of puncture some myths about him. So we'll put the Steinbaum episode in the show notes. And I think they might really pair really well together if you're a listener who hasn't heard that one.
0: Yes, definitely. Sam, we are critical of Friedman, especially towards the end of the episode. But I think our listeners would rather hear how is Milton Friedman different as a kind of species of libertarian than, say, Hayek or Mises? Yeah. Those are the kinds of things we wanted Jennifer to explain to us, and she was just a great guest. Yeah, absolutely. Should we do housekeeping, Matt? Yes. Now for some housekeeping items. As always, we're grateful to our partners at Dissent. They sponsor the podcast, and one thing they do for us is, and you all should take advantage of this, is subscribe on patreon.com slash knowyourenemy to the podcast for $10 a month. Descent gives you a free digital subscription, And I know this spring, Sam and I are co-editing a special section of the spring issue on kind of the global far right. So Descent is always great, but the know your enemy <laughs> boys will be back in the editorial saddle yeah. this spring. So uh, get that subscription started now. And of course for $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus episodes. And our last one was on the election of Javier Millet in Argentina with our great friend, David Adler. And he knows so much about Latin American politics and is on the ground. And so, uh, you should give it a listen because, uh, I'm really proud of some of those episodes that are behind a paywall, but are for the real nerds out there.
1: Yeah, it's a great episode. I re-listened to it recently because I was reading Malay news and was like, what did we say exactly? And then uh, (laughs) I went back to it and David is really so good. And it was just a few days after the election and you're going to keep seeing crazy news coming out of Argentina now that he's president. And I think the place setting that we do in that episode is pretty indispensable. So if you're not a subscriber... Better subscribe and listen to our conversation about anarcho capitalism in Argentina. Anyway, moving on, as always, we want to thank our intrepid producer, Jesse Brenneman, who did a great job with this episode, as he does with all of them. And we want to thank Will Epstein, who does the music for the podcast.
0: Yes, thank you to both of them. Thank you to you, Sam. Thank you to Jennifer. And uh, listeners, I have reached the point of maturity where I no longer read reviews of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, <laughs> so I don't know, you know, what's being said there. But uh, every once in a while, we like to remind you to subscribe and comment. You know, rate the podcast and review it. We'd love that. Apparently, it helps with the algorithm. So please, yes, do. that's right. All right, here's our episode on Milton Friedman, the libertarian economist, with Stanford's Jennifer Burns. Enjoy. All right, let's get started. Jennifer Burns, welcome to Know Your Enemy.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me. I am such a huge fan of this pod, and I'm really excited to be here.
0: Well, thank you. This book, it's just been published just a little earlier this month. Congratulations, Jennifer. And the book is Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative a provocative title, especially that subtitle. That's what we're going to talk about today. It clocks in, what, just under 500 pages. So a light read compared to Beverly Gage's uh, J. Edgar Hoover biography, you might say. But before we really dive into the substance of the book, one thing we like to ask at the start of these episodes, especially about a project like this that you spent years of your life on, probably close to a decade, right?
2: Uh, actually, a little bit more, if I'm being perfectly honest.
0: <laughs> and we mentioned your previous book, In our introduction, your biography of Ayn Rand called Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. So you're a natural know your enemy guest. You've been a historian of the right and especially these kind of more libertarian figures. And I was just kind of wondering, you know, how you decided to write this book about Milton Friedman, how you landed on him as a subject and kind of how this project first took shape.
2: So it pretty much grew out of the Rand book, which began as my doctoral dissertation at UC Berkeley. And I was just really interested in Ayn Rand. I didn't know much about her. And I knew people were still reading her. I knew she had to be significant, particularly to conservatives and libertarians. And so I kind of started digging into Rand and made that intellectual biography, my dissertation, and then my first book. And that was such a great experience, kind of from start to finish. It was really intellectually satisfying. I really liked thinking about fiction and ideas and ideology and how they all came together. And I didn't really have a clear plan what I would do next. And I never had this career path of like, I will write biographies of iconic conservative thinkers. That was not like a master plan at all. And so when I was thinking about what to do next, I was interested in kind of writing more of a synthesis of conservative ideas. I was interested in, you all probably familiar with George Nash's classic work and the conservative intellectual movement. So I was thinking, huh, maybe I'll do something like that. I was also really curious about this was a time when the term neoliberalism was being bandied about quite a bit in the academy. And I was like, what is neoliberalism? Like, what are people talking about when they say this? So I had these kind of two projects of maybe I do a bigger synthetic history, maybe I do a concept history of neoliberalism. And I couldn't really get any traction. And eventually I realized I needed to go through the Chicago school. And so as I started thinking about, well, how do I get into the Chicago school? I was like, well, I could read about Milton Friedman. And then it was like, oh, well, there's not really a good book on Milton Friedman. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> it's, it's calling my name. And so eventually I decided this was a way to answer those questions, kind of using the medium of biography. And I think biography is such a great way to get into these bigger questions and especially like the thick and complicated ideas that you sort of need to be eased into if you're not a specialist. But I was hesitant because history professors don't really write biographies. Or maybe they write one. They usually don't write two in a row. And so it took me a while to just decide, you know what? I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I think this is going to work out. So Rand gave me access to a kind of grassroots energy that was really homegrown. And she sort of succeeded against all the odds. And Friedman, I saw, is very different. This was an elite, credentialed, kind of top-down presence. And so I thought doing both of them together would give me more of a picture in the round.
0: Friedman, of course, was born July 31st, 1912, and he died November 16th, 2006. He was 94 when he died, so he lived a long time. His life did basically span the 20th century. He's a famous libertarian economist. Again, as you mentioned, he's associated with the Chicago School of Economics, which, as the term indicates is centered on the economics department at the University of Chicago, where he taught for nearly three decades. So this towering figure, he's someone when I was a young conservative, I of course knew about his book, Free to Choose, was the kind of thing that circulated among interns on the right back then. But things are kind of different on the right now. This is a different right than the one Friedman was on for most of his life, or at least the Republican Party. He seems kind of a man out of time right now. He's not someone the young intellectuals on the right are seeking out. And it's not his books, right? They're passing along. For listeners who might be like, why should we care about this guy? Why did you spend over a decade writing this book? When you were doing the research, did anything strike you as really new, kind of an assumption you had about Friedman that really turned out not to be true? Or just in general, what you learned about him that you didn't know going into it?
2: So, you know, why should we care about Milton Friedman when he's not the name on the lips of the young conservative of today? To kind of answer this question, I actually want to argue against my title a little bit. So, my subtitle is The Last Conservative. But as I was finishing my research and kind of pulling the book together, I realized that in some ways that's a disservice just to think of Friedman as a conservative, because particularly in the last decades of his life, his ideas became very dominant, not just for conservatives, not just for Republicans, but for Democrats, for centrists, through many different countries across the globe. It really came to define this sort of market consensus that. I think really solidified in the wake of the ending of the USSR, but also became dominant from the time of stagflation, the mid 70s, all throughout the 80s. And so the reason why Friedman is important is because so many of the ideas and suppositions and assumptions we sort of take for granted in our contemporary world were ones that he really advocated for and pushed through. And I wouldn't say is solely responsible for, but really embodied and crystallized. So I think if you read this book, you realize how many things you take for granted and that actually were part of a historical process and part of intellectual change across the 20th century. The other thing I would say that in terms of the question to like, what did you learn about Friedman that that surprised you or what do you want listeners to know? One thing I want them to know is that the Friedman on YouTube is like the tail end of Friedman. The one that we encounter In the popular media, interviewing Donahue. I sort of think of this as like the decadent Friedman. This is Friedman in the last years of his life when he's become sort of a figurehead and a symbol. And I think the early Friedman is much more intellectually rich and robust and interesting and more dynamic. And so, in terms of the things that I learned, there are so many. I'll just flag two. One was, When I began the research, I started diving deep into the Chicago School, the history of the Chicago School, which is this sort of bastion of free market economics. And Milton Friedman arrived there in the Great Depression. And I assumed that he would have learned from his professors like, oh, this is just a natural market correction. We shouldn't really do anything or we shouldn't really worry about it. And I found sort of the complete opposite, like a high level of concern and distress over what was happening Lots of proposals to the federal government saying what the federal government should do to help, and just this sort of all-hands-on-deck mentality in this economic crisis. And so I sort of had to check myself and then be like, well, who were the people who were saying it's laissez-faire capitalism, just let it happen? And there's really like only a handful of those people, and, and Friedman is not one of them. His teachers are not among them. The other thing that I talk about in length in my book that I had no idea about was the number of women economists who collaborated with him formally and informally behind all his major work. And I think some reviewer was like, oh, of course she's talking about women, you know, it's 2023. And I'm like, no, 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 this was actually there in the source material. Like I didn't come with some like feminist agenda. I just kept finding these women and being like, what are they doing here? And then for me, that really helped me understand the depth and breadth of Friedman's career because he was able to draw upon sort of the combined intellectual forces of many different people who were not able to assume the kind of public-facing role that he was by virtue of his race and gender at the time.
1: Right. I want to talk about that more later. It's like two of the three books I noticed that are in his Nobel citation were collaborations with women. Right. You certainly didn't have to like make up some feminist agenda to show that that his career was enabled by the genius of several talented women.
2: Exactly. I mean, that citation drives me crazy because at least the announcement, several parts of it, they identify A Monetary History of the United States as his book. And I'm like, no, it's not his book. He wrote it with someone else.
0: Jennifer, one quick question to clarify here. You mentioned some of our listeners might encounter Friedman on YouTube. What do you mean by that? And I guess kind of as a follow-up, because you had written your previous book on Ayn Rand, you know, she was a popular figure, right? We all know the kind of teenage Ayn Rand fan, like it's a type. I was wondering, like, how famous was Friedman? Like, would an ordinary American have known about him? I'm thinking especially of the the show he did with his wife, uh, Rose Friedman, on PBS in 1980, which was like broadcast in 75% of PBS households.
2: I mean, he was among the first celebrity economists. So he, for first- First became very popular in the sort of public eye with the publication of A Monetary History, which was in 1963. So this enormous blockbuster book that he authored with Anna Schwartz, that was where he started disappearing in the news all the time because it was a new interpretation of the Great Depression, which was still very fresh, less than 30 years prior in that moment. And then the second boom came when he signed up as an advisor to Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign. And basically the media couldn't make heads or tails of Goldwater. Like, what are you for, Senator Goldwater? He really didn't have any answers. And Friedman would pop up and say, Well, here's here's what Goldwater believes. So he became this sort of spokesperson for Goldwaterism. Then after that, he became a columnist for Newsweek, alternating with Paul Samuelson and one other economist. And Newsweek today has fallen from its heights, but Newsweek was one of the like big three magazines out there. And this is where people got their news. This is what sort of shaped the narrative. And so Friedman was a source of economic analysis. In Newsweek, he started in the 60s. I mean, I think it ran for 20 years. And then towards the end of his career, after he had retired, he and his wife, Rose, produced this television series, Free to Choose.
0: The Vasali family, like all of us who live in the United States today, owe much to the climate of freedom we inherited from the
1: founders of our country. But in the past 50 years, we've been squandering that inheritance by allowing government to control more and more of our lives instead of relying on ourselves. We need to rediscover the old truths that the immigrants knew in their bones, what economic freedom is, and the role it plays in preserving personal freedom.
2: This aired in 1980, and it kind of got wrapped up, not formally into Reagan's campaign, but I would say it's part of the kind of cultural moment where Reagan is saying we have to sort of free the economy, we have to rediscover what capitalism can do, and Friedman is saying the exact same thing. And so that just gave him this enormous public profile. Friedman was on the cover of Time magazine. This is when this was like a huge cultural achievement. He was on the cover of the New York Times magazine. In 1980, the Free to Choose book was a bestseller. So that really made him into, I would say, a sort of a household name and a public figure in a way that I don't know could be replicated today in our more fragmented media environment. Now, the YouTube Friedman phenomenon, there's kind of two parts. One is interview clips of him or clips of him on Donahue. He's kind of like the Ben Shapiro of his day. We see these Ben Shapiro videos where they're like, watch Shapiro smack down, you know, such and such. Like Friedman has this quick repartee that gets circulated. Slightly separate from that, I would say, is the Free to Choose series. The first half of the episode is Friedman kind of voyaging around and going to Hong Kong or going to the one-room schoolhouse and talking about his ideas. The second half, he sits down in Harper Library. University of Chicago, kind of wood paneled, you know, very traditional room with a cast of characters to debate. And these are live action debates. And he brings in people that definitely dislike him a lot, like Francis Fox Piven is there. He brings in some of his buddies, like there's a young Don Rumsfeld. And they actually debate and argue. And a couple of people have pointed out to me recently, like, wow, this is so great. Okay, they're kind of corny, but like, nobody's doing this anymore. You know, nobody's building a career on substantively and publicly arguing with people with whom they disagree, right? This isn't like Twitter snark. This is like, they're actually in a room together arguing. So I guess while I, I kind of bagged on the YouTube Friedman, I do think some of those free to choose episodes are gesturing towards something that maybe we could use more of at this moment in time.
1: Yeah, I want to uh, reset slightly and proceed somewhat chronologically through his career. If you could start us off just sort of giving us a short flavor of what his early life was like, what his family life was like growing up.
2: Yeah, for sure. So... Freeman grew up in Rahway, New Jersey, and what's interesting about his family, they were Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, you know, in the wave of immigration that came in the early years of the 20th century. But most of those immigrants stayed in New York, they stayed in Chicago, they were immersed in these more urban cultures that were often very left-leaning or very socialistic. Freeman's family went to Rahway, New Jersey, small town, one of about 10 Jewish families in this town, you know, several hundred. And they ran a dry goods store. And Freeman grew up in this kind of prototypical American boyhood that was pretty rare for an immigrant at the time. And, you know, his family was, they weren't poor, they weren't well off, they were doing okay. They had property, they had businesses, they were able to kind of have their children have. A nice life. I, I went through all the newspaper records, and so I was able to find Friedman. Later would be like my parents were very poor. Like, I'm like I, you know, they really weren't that poor from the evidence that I uncovered.
1: He had sisters, right? Didn't he grow up with all sisters?
2: Yeah, he was the youngest child. Three girls above him, and they were actually quite distinguished themselves. Some of them were higher in their class rank than Friedman himself. But the the tradition was, as as a family member told me, you know, the girls were going to go to work, and the boy was going to go to school. So really, only Milton was. Connected considered a a candidate for higher education. Now, the other thing that happened that was very formative for him is when he was in his senior year of high school, his father had a heart attack and died very suddenly. And so he won all these awards at school. He won like a New York Times oratorial contest. He was obviously very bright, but he didn't have a model for what that would look like. So His first idea was that he would be an actuary, you know, somebody running calculations for an insurance company because he was good at math. And that was like the only thing he sort of imagined he could do. He got to Rutgers and it's at Rutgers that he met Arthur Burns, who became this incredible role model for him. So Arthur Burns was similarly a Jewish immigrant who came at about age 10 and then had this incredible academic career through Columbia and had become a PhD economist. He did not have a professor job. So he was kind of adjuncting at Rutgers and Friedman was just really blown away by Arthur Burns, who seemed so like sophisticated and worldly and had this whole exciting intellectual career. And so Burns and another fellow Homer Jones said, look, you've got to be an economist. Like you're good at this. You can do this. This is sort of like a new path. And then he, as he describes it, it was 1932. I mean, the worst years of the great depression. And he felt like I need to know why this is happening. I need some answers to these questions and economics seems like it will get me further (laughs) than just straight math. So that was kind of what set him on the path. And he would go back to Rahway for, you know, holidays and things like that. But he didn't have much in common with his family after that.
1: One of the interesting things from that early part of his education at Chicago was this kind of transition going on, or at least a conflict between what was being called neoclassical economics and institutionalism. Could you describe kind of the difference there and how that transition or that kind of conflict influenced his education and his later preoccupations?
2: So as I describe in the book, it's a quiet period in economics up until the 1930s. There are kind of two major divisions. One would be neoclassical economics. So this is using the tools of marginal analysis to analyze choice under conditions of scarcity. So the basic building blocks of supply and demand curves, right? If you have a high demand and a low supply, the price goes up. And the idea being that you graph these things... And markets over time will settle out in a place where everybody is able to buy what they want or sell what they want in a mutually advantageous way. So this is an abstract way of kind of looking at markets and looking at economics. And it also has a social philosophy, which is markets are the most efficient allocators of scarce resources. Therefore, we should, by and large, let them do their job of setting prices, setting wages and allocating goods throughout the economy. So in contradistinction to that is the institutional school. And the institutional school grows up in opposition to neoclassical economics, and it's oriented more towards history. It's looking at the development of economies over time. And it's saying, basically, we're now in an industrial era in which these older assumptions about markets working well and allocation being done efficiently no longer hold true because we have large corporations, we have workers lacking power, we have monopolies, and we have so much complexity that the federal government and state governments need to play a role in making markets work better, making the system more fair. And they would often talk about this idea of social control, the idea that society should control these forces, not be controlled by them. And so this played out in reform movements, the, the, you know, institutional economists were linked to the kind of earlier wave of child labor laws or minimum wage laws, or they pioneered things like unemployment insurance. Most of these were pilots, so they would be taken up more broadly by the New Deal. The real difference, though, is that institutional economists think that in different eras, there can be different types of economies and different types of economic analysis that is needed, where the neoclassical economists think, you know, this is basically these sort of universal laws of economic life. That you know, you, you don't need to follow them exactly, but these are basically the way things work. Whether you have a, an agrarian economy, an industrialized economy, a post-industrial economy, this is your basic analysis. And so there is this intellectual divide that I think is is really important. And what's significant is that both of these camps are still occupying prominent places in the economics discipline when Friedman enters. The University of Chicago. And basically within 15 years, the institutionalists will have been sort of chased out.
1: Right. You mentioned how important the reaction to the New Deal was for Friedman's development and you sort of brushed aside the assumption that everyone around Chicago, and, and Friedman included, would be just opposed to any kind of government action. That wasn't the case. But how would you characterize Friedman's reaction to the New Deal, the Roosevelt solution to the Depression, while it was taking place? And I think maybe including in this answer, something that I found really interesting, is your emphasis on the fact that Even though he advocated for a more active role for the government in responding to the Depression in the years of the 30s and and into the war era, you say that despite what he would later say about himself, he never really had a Keynesian phase.
2: Yeah, yeah. This is where chronology really helps. So He arrives in 1932, and as I said, there's great concern about what is going on with the Great Depression. There's support for relief efforts, and there's support for banking and financial reform, and that's really the first thing Roosevelt does is basically reforms the entire banking system in the United States. Deposit insurance, you can't like make stuff up in your stock prospectuses anymore, you know, just really kind of rationalizes and regulates that whole sector. And most of the Chicago suggestions are very much in line with what was taken up in the Banking Act. And they actually would have gone even further further. And pretty much done away with fractional reserve banking, which is the ability for banks to loan on only a fraction of their deposits, they would actually have wanted to abolish that. So it was a really radical transformation of the financial sector that Chicago proposed. And I would say a radical transformation of the financial sector happened in the early years of the New Deal. So that's where Friedman is on board. And what Friedman gets from his professors is an interpretation of the Great Depression that really focuses on the banking sector and focuses on the financial sector and says, this is really the problem. There was like a liquidity crisis, there was a breakdown in the banking system. This is what made it so bad. That is not unique to Chicago, but that interpretation is very strong at Chicago. In other departments, and particularly over time at the Harvard department, another interpretation arises, which is much more global and is much more critical of capitalism in general. It's kind of a diluted version of the Marxist crisis of capitalism. And what it is, is an argument that the United States economy, maybe the world economy, has reached a certain level of maturation where it can no longer grow in the same way. And one piece of evidence for this is that the frontier is closed. You know, people like Alvin Hansen go back to Frederick Jackson Turner's 1892 essay, The Frontier, you know, is the seedbed of American identity. And they say, we have no frontier. And the the movement West, the movement into the frontier was like the economic engine. And so we're lacking that economic engine. And we're now going to enter a new phase of history, which will be characterized by secular stagnation. And so the explanation is, things have changed profoundly. We're in a new phase of capitalism or a new phase of economic history. And we need the federal government to tax and spend in a deliberate way to keep the motor running. And so this is, you can see, just philosophically different from the idea that we have a crisis in a banking and financial sector that we can remedy by changing the laws and regulations around it. And then the natural dynamic of economic growth will then unfold versus we're in a really new state and we need to have the federal government play a new role. So that latter interpretation, Friedman never buys into it. So Friedman supports the New Deal, but he's not a, quote, new dealer in the way that other economists. Most of them coming out of Harvard become full throated defenders and advocates and expositors of the New Deal and the corresponding set of ideas that the role of the federal government has profoundly changed.
1: For the listeners, I think just to sort of underscore something secular stagnation just means the economy isn't growing in a market society. And it's not just cyclical, it's just like the, there's not enough growth. And the reason that the Keynesian solution. Is prescribed is that that means using the fiscal lever, you know, pushing money into the economy. The government spends money. It creates the later parts of the New Deal, you know, the Tennessee Valley Authority. It creates jobs. It creates infrastructure projects all over the place, you know. That's what the Keynesian solution would be. And that's the thing that you're saying Friedman never really buys into. He doesn't think that this fiscal policy, government spending, is going to resolve whatever set of new kinds of problems the 20th century is throwing into the global economy.
2: Also, that justifies taxation to break up pools of capital, which are not going to be productively invested because we're now in a secular stagnation. So the government can productively invest that. So I think Friedman will develop two objections to this. One is kind of epistemological, like it's not possible for the government to sort of figure out where the economy is slowing down and then to kind of neatly inject money in a way that will work in a straightforward way. He, he sort of thinks it's too complicated. And then there will be a more philosophical objection, which is the government is going to get bigger. And as the government gets bigger, it's going to inhibit or crowd out private investment and private economic initiative, which he thinks is what powers growth and development and innovation and all of that.
1: And all in the mix here is just a great anxiety and opposition amongst Friedman and his sort of cohort about the very prospect of planning, like what you just described. The government just can't do this as well as the market can.
2: Yes. And I would say that planning is another key distinction between the institutional school and the neoclassical school. So the institutionalists have much more confidence in planning and much more belief that planning is needed and see the Great Depression as evidence that the economy cannot function without planning. And so, yeah, planning becomes this buzzword.
0: One more thing, while we're talking about Friedman's formative years, especially his time at the University of Chicago, he was there in 1932, right as the Depression is unfolding. And he actually did work for the federal government. He worked for the New Deal. Starting in 1935, right, he began working for the National Resources Planning Board. So he went to Washington as a New Dealer. But there's one thing in particular I I wanted to ask you about, because I just kind of sense it really was of some importance to him. Which is in 1940, he was appointed as a a professor of economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and really encountered anti-Semitism there in a way that actually brought him back to DC. By 41, he's back working on wartime tax policy for the federal government as an advisor to people at the Department of Treasury. So not only was the New Deal happening around him, but World War II and the Holocaust As a Jewish American, what did that early encounter with anti-Semitism mean to him? And how did that reverberate throughout his life, especially wariness of the state and what social control and government power, the agents of the state, what they can do to you?
2: It was interesting. He spoke not at all about anti-Semitism in his childhood, but I did find the recollections of other writers who had grown up in Rahway who were ganged up on and bullied and sort of chased by mobs, chanting anti-Semitic slogans. So that may well have happened to him in his childhood, and he just didn't recollect it. But even before he gets to Wisconsin, he's very vigilant about anti-Semitism. It's core to his identity. He's not practicing Judaism, but it's very important to him intellectually. And I should just tell your listeners, so he starts at the University of Chicago. He then transitions to Columbia University. And so he's in New York, and he eventually takes up his dissertation. Interestingly enough, it's an institutionally oriented dissertation that looks at the incomes of doctors and dentists, and ends up looking at this key institution of the American Medical Association. So on the one hand, he's working with institutionalist methods, but he's using the neoclassical analysis to drive what he ends up arguing. And it's an argument about why doctors make more money than dentists which he lays at the feet of the AMA American Medical Association It says the American Medical Association is a cartel and it's an illegitimate monopolistic organization basically underneath this abstract economic argument there are a bunch of footnotes that reveal Friedman is extremely bothered by the AMA's decision it's around 1938 to suddenly require english for physicians And he's like, why are they requiring this now in 1938, when a whole flood of Jewish doctors, mostly speaking German, is coming to the United States? So he already sees the AMA as a cartel, but then he adds this extra layer of it's an anti-Semitic cartel, and it's using its idea of licensure and assuming professional standards as a cover for what he sees as just very rank discrimination. So even in the beginning, he's sensitive of how efforts to kind of structure markets can be used in exclusionary ways. And that Jewish identity is really core to that.
1: And what happens at Wisconsin?
2: So he does work for the New Deal. It's like the only place hiring and he can use his skills and he's happy to do it. And then he gets offered a position at the University of Wisconsin, which is One of the top departments, it's a little bit fallen on its heels, but it's still a very good offer. And so he goes and pretty much right away, he feels out of step. And Wisconsin still has a very heavy German immigrant presence. German language is spoken a lot. And he sort of arrives and immediately starts telling everybody how much he wants the United States to intervene in the European war. And this is before Pearl Harbor. This is before the United States has entered the war. And Wisconsin is basically a bastion of isolationism. And so pretty quickly, he feels out of step. He feels discriminated against. He feels like the only person who's friendly to him is the one other Jewish faculty member. And then he makes a series of blunders. (laughs) He ruffles feathers. He writes a memo that basically says everyone in this department is pretty dumb and doesn't know what they're doing. (laughs) And so everybody gets very mad at him, and he ends up losing the job. And there definitely seems to be a sense in that him as a sort of Jewish interloper coming in for at least a segment of the faculty, that was meaningful to them. They felt like he was an outsider, and they wanted him out. And so he loses this job and has to kind of lick his wounds and go back and ends up back in the Treasury Department and back working for the federal government.
1: I think it might make sense now to sort of describe what his main kind of contribution is in the early part of his career. As you say, when he did his most important work, you know, it's in opposition in some ways to Keynesianism, the Keynesian consensus that he intervened in. And the word that gets attached to it is monetarism. Could you tell us What that is (laughs) and how it fits into these various tributaries of thought that he's absorbing.
2: Yeah, so I should just say when Friedman comes out of Chicago, he's absorbed this monetary financial interpretation of the Great Depression. He's also absorbed the sort of political economy of his teachers, Frank Knight and Henry Simons, which we could fairly characterize as classical liberalism, a belief in limited government, market allocation, and a reduced state or a state that works to enhance market forces, not to unduly structure them and, and with a limited social safety net. So that's kind of the political economy. And he's training as a mathematical economist, and he's hired at the University of Chicago. There's a great boom in academic employment, and he's published some important papers in mathematical economics. And so he's hired at Chicago as a kind of rising young star. And then he gets there and he really changes course and starts studying money. And it sounds strange to say that money is an unfashionable topic among economists, but in the late 1940s it it really is, because there is a sense that money is a veil that lies over other more important economic forces. And so nobody's really thinking of it as having its own kind of agency and power, that is the quantity of currency circulating. But Friedman has, you know, been exposed to this different set of ideas that it is really important and that the Great Depression is not an episode of secular stagnation, but is an episode of the sort of banking system gone awry. And so he is then working for the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is headed by his great old friend, Arthur Burns. So he really wants to do whatever he can to support Burns, who's trying to kind of bring NBR back up to its glory days. And so Burns gets the idea to match him with a staff member NBR, Anna Schwartz, who is working on this question of money, which was very important to the founder of NBR, who had just died. And he sort of puts them together. And Friedman decides, let's measure how much money is in the economy at various times. And he doesn't really know much about economic history at all. Schwartz has written a huge book on the history of the British economy. So she takes the lead. And what they do is they literally start measuring How much money is in the economy like decade by decade since the Civil War? And Schwartz really takes the lead here. She will add up all these columns of figures. Like she will go to different banks. She'll get banking reports. She'll sometimes go to the bank and like dig through the archives, add up all the money. And so eventually they're able to create this sort of chart of how much money is in the economy at different times. And what they find, according to their data, is that simplifying here, when there's more money, the economy does better. In downturns, the quantity of money is reduced. And most significantly, they find that during the Great Depression, the quantity of money in the United States is reduced by 30%. So basically, a third of the money in the United States is destroyed. And this is because prior to bank insurance, if a bank goes under, all of the deposits that people have made just simply vanish into thin air. So fractional reserve banking set in reverse is like an engine of destruction of money. And there is no federal backstop. And what they argue, though, is, wait a second, there was supposed to be a federal backstop. There was supposed to be the federal reserve system. And the federal reserve system (laughs) did not take action. It just sort of stood there as all these banks failed and it wasn't proactive. It didn't do any of the things it was supposed to do. So they really lay the blame at the doorstep of the Federal Reserve. So what this book does, it creates a history of the United States in money, showing the kinds of ups and downs in money and linking perturbances in economic life to shifts and changes in the actual quantity of money in the economy. Now, they're able to argue that these shifts have a causal force so, it's not just like, oh, the economy went down and therefore money went down. They're able to argue that money went down, therefore the economy went down. Money is no longer a veil, it's kind of an active force in the economy. And so, this ends up being a real challenge to Keynesianism because it sets up another way to think about what's going on in the economy and it sort of recenters focus on this quantity of money, an abstract thing, and it's refocuses attention on the central banking system. And what Friedman ends up arguing is, now we can see that ups and downs in the economy are caused by ups and downs in the money supply. Therefore, in order to have steady economic growth, we need steady growth in the money supply. That's kind of the core of monetarism. Quantity of money matters. And in order to have stable economic growth, there should be stable growth in the supply of money. And then Friedman will kind of elaborate this into there should actually be a rule that binds the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve should say, we're going to grow the money supply at 4% a year. Or maybe even Congress should pass a law and say, Federal Reserve, you have to grow the money supply at 4% a year. So again, Friedman, when it comes to banking and financial sector, in some modes is actually in favor of regulation. And what's so interesting is in the 60s, he becomes a partner in crime with White Patman, who is a Texas populist Democrat and like the number one public enemy of the Fed. And Patman loves Friedman because Friedman also thinks the Fed is like undemocratic, incompetent. And Patman has this kind of populist suspicion of banks. And it's so fascinating that he ends up lining up with Friedman to sort of libertarian free market champion who's also very suspicious of banks. So they they kind of have this weird horseshoe theory where they briefly meet and actually raise a lot of ruckus in Congress and really like stress the Fed out because they're getting this like pincher attack from both left and right.
0: I wanted to just ask here, we associate Friedman with kind of the neoliberal moment, right? Kind of the Mont Pelerin Society meeting in the early 50s. These people like Mises, Hayek, and others. We know Friedrich Hayek also taught at the University of Chicago. What made Friedman different from some of his also famous libertarian brethren? What kind of libertarian was he?
2: In the beginning of his career, he is more open to government intervention and to addressing questions of poverty and inequality than Hayek. So he's a very early proponent of some version of universal basic income. And he's talking about that at the Mont Pelerin Society. And a lot of other people at Mont Pelerin are like, why are you even bringing this up? And he's like, this is really important. We need to address questions of poverty as we're addressing questions of capitalism. Like we can't separate them.
1: Isn't that the Mount Pelerin meeting where Mises goes, you're all socialists, and storms out of the room?
2: Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And unlike Hayek and Mises, Friedman engages in all the new intellectual tools that are being developed by economists. So he's able to argue with, and at times get the better of, other university economists, where... Mises and Hayek are just out of the game, and they sort of set up a parallel intellectual world because they're still doing 19th century economics, where Friedman is more doing 20th century economics. And then Friedman is both a pragmatist and a purist. You know, he's willing to take half a loaf and say, okay, let's take the steps we can take right now. But if you look at what he would actually call for, it can be extremely pure, and extremely extreme. So one would be like, he's an advocate of school vouchers, charter schools. If you really press him on it, he'll be like, yeah, we should not have public schools at all. So that's like, whoa. Or, you know, with licensure, he'll critique the AMA. And he basically eventually says, yeah, I don't think doctors should need to be licensed. You think the market should be able to decide. So on the one hand, when you when you take that all the way to the end, you find yourself in a very pure libertarian position yet he's able to talk to policymakers, propose solutions that are practical and that work in reality as it is now. So I think that's one of the kind of secrets. When you're very pure in your belief and your ideology, there's a certain power and clarity to that. And he gets that power and clarity, yet at the same time, he's not pie in the sky because he's willing to trim and he's willing to take what he can get in the moment. And so I think that combination makes him very powerful. Now, comparing him to Hayek is difficult because Hayek evolves over time. On the one hand, lots of things that Friedman gets blamed for are sort of more Hayek type statements and ideas. On the other hand, by the end of his career, Hayek thinks we should have like competing currencies. And, you know, Hayek is more of the inspiration for the kind of cryptocurrency bitcoin movement whereas friedman is like that's never going to work everyone's just going to devolve to one currency no matter what so from a certain libertarian standpoint he is a fake libertarian from the anarcho-capitalist viewpoint and from the austrian economics viewpoint he's too statist so it's a mix it's a mix and i honestly i often think that contradictions are actually very powerful. You have more impact if you're full of contradictions than if you make perfect sense.
1: Maybe this is a moment of contradiction. There's something I wanted to just put a pin in here that I just found to be an interesting and maybe like symptomatic moment that you point to in the biography, which is in nineteen forty six when Friedman writes the pamphlet Roofs or Ceilings Mm -hmm. with his friend George Stigler. The thing that I was really interested in was the conflict this little pamphlet set off because basically the people who contracted them to write it, the Foundation of Economic Education, wanting them to cut references to inequality and measures to improving equality from the pamphlet, which really pissed Friedman off.
2: Yeah, this I think is just such an important. Episode in the sort of history of the conservative movement. It's a, it's a small micro history. So during the war, there are a huge number of wartime regulations, price controls in all kinds of sectors, including rent control, is instituted in many states and cities. And then there's a housing shortage. As all the veterans come back, there's a housing shortage. And so then there's a political debate like, what should we do about all these wartime controls, including rent control? Should they be repealed? Should they be continued? And so Friedman and Sigler say, what we really need to do is provide some economic analysis. And we need to point out that if you need more housing, you shouldn't restrict the price because the landlords won't want to build more housing if they can't get enough money for it. And so you're restricting the price and you're limiting the supply. And this is like the wrong way to go about trying to increase housing supply. So that's one efficiency-based argument. At the same time, they say like, sure, this is efficient. But actually, it's also going to help us get more equal housing for everybody, even though people think rent control is what creates equal housing, it's created a housing shortage. So there's an argument for this on equity as well. And so they are writing in the mode of depression era Chicago that is very concerned about the economic crisis. And they're very much echoing the philosophy and ideas of Henry Simons, who's a very important mentor of Friedman's. And they first write the pamphlet. They want it to be published in like the New York Times or some mainstream outlet. Nobody's interested in this at all. But they find this new group, the Foundation for Economic Education, which is like one of the first kind of startup right-wing think tanks. And they say, great, we'll publish it. And then they get the pamphlet and they don't like this invocation of equality. And they say, we're going to take that out. And Freeman and Sigler say, no, 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 you have to leave that in. And they kind of go back and forth, back and forth. And in these letters, you have these officials from the Foundation of Economic Organizations saying, we don't want to argue about equality. We want to defend capitalism. And we don't want to say you're defending capitalism because it brings equality. Like they are social Darwinists, full stop. And as I look at it, this is like an older version of conservative economic thinking and conservative ideas. And it's dark and it's kind of 19th century and Friedman and Sigler want nothing to do with it. And in fact, they want to push that type of logic away and introduce a new type of logic which uses the science of economics, but also incorporates social concerns, safety net, equity, equality. And so anyhow, the Foundation for Economic Education agrees. Okay, fine. But then without telling Friedman and Stigler, they put a footnote. Friedman and Stigler say something like, oh, and this, like, this will create more equality. And then the foundation puts a footnote that's basically like, yeah, but even if you don't care about equality, like it's fine. <laughs> and then they do a massive printing that's going out, probably as part of a political lobbying campaign, and they cut the entire paragraph without telling Friedman and Stigler. And so they're just furious. But I have to add, there's another subplot going on here, which is that Ayn Rand is also working with the Foundation for Economic Education and believes that she is going to be a sort of gatekeeper and also like them has kind of a social Darwinist, unregulated capitalism. You rise and fall on your merits and your talents. And when she sees this pamphlet, she thinks this is written by communists because they are using an efficiency and an equity argument. And she sees this as a way of kind of disarming opposition and kind of smuggling in, like, sure, today you say take away rent control, tomorrow you say nationalize everybody's house, right? She gets so mad that there's basically a blow up. And so the Foundation for Economic Education is on the outs with Ayn Rand for being communist and on the outs with Friedman and Stigler for being opposed to, you know, their egalitarian sentiments. And so to my mind, this just shows conservatives are trying to figure out how to talk about economics in the wake of the New Deal, in the wake of the rise of Keynesian economics. They're trying to figure out their ethics. Like, how do you defend capitalism without saying only the strong survive and the weak get what they deserve? And Friedman does not want to say that. He really does not. But he doesn't know how to not say it yet. He's trying to figure that out.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting to see them on opposite sides of that debate about how to talk about the appeal of this sort of free market ideology, because really, Friedman obviously wins. I mean, it's much better to talk about the free market as this engine of upward lift for all people, as opposed to like insisting on saying, no, the free market is like a coliseum where the strong fight it out to win and come out out on top and the weak fall. I mean, which is like that current in libertarianism and in conservatism exists, of course, and it persists. But especially as we move into the 1950s, of course, like Friedman's sort of message of like, of course, we support free markets because they're efficient, but also because their moral is so much better, even just as propaganda.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how deeply people believed it to the extent that they couldn't register. This isn't going to be a successful argument in the public square. It's just not.
1: You mentioned that there was sort of a sense that there was a sort of lobbying campaign that encouraged FEE to put out this pamphlet in its edited, non-egalitarian version, and that it had something to do with the National Association of Real Estate Boards that they were just kind of like contracted to do this to help this special interest. And that also wasn't something that Friedman liked. And then later on, he wrote about what he wanted for some future endeavor. And he'd mentioned that he didn't want to do any hack work, quote unquote, hack work. And it, 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 the other thing about this episode that it made me think about was like, did this anger stay with him this anger of, of having his ideas be used for like sort of propaganda purposes by privately motivated interests, because in some ways later on, I think he loses sight of how his ideas might be used by people who don't maybe share his whole philosophical vision, but basically just want, you know, unfettered capitalism for the benefit of particular business interests. Like I kind of see this version of Friedman in this moment who would be a little bit more protective of the integrity of these ideas that he may have let his guard down later on his career.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think part of it is he's starting out as a young scholar and he wants to control the message and he's very afraid that the wrong message is going to get out and he can never recover from that. And in this case, he, he feels it's a mistake to not incorporate this kind of egalitarian tint. And also in 1940s, he's starting to work with organized conservatives, because this is not a really strong identity for him, I would say. Over time, he becomes more committed to, I'm kind of part of this team. And there's this other team out there that's different. And so you'll get to the point when he's commenting on supply side economics, he'll be like, There's no way this is going to work. Like, it's a crazy idea. It doesn't make any sense, but it might shrink government, and therefore I can support it. You know, so later, I think he gets in a coherent movement that's opposed to another coherent movement. And secondly, in 1946, the state has grown enormously in the course of the war. Nobody really knows what's going to happen next. Are we going to have a giant and second Great Depression? Is the state going to continue to grow at this rate? Is it going to retrench? And so, By the time you get to the late 60s and 70s, and particularly after the Nixon administration, Freeman comes to conclude that the dynamic of the federal government is growth and expansion, and that any politician, no matter what they say, is going to be swept up in that dynamic when they get into office. And therefore, I'm going to just pull out all the stops and just be opposed as much as I can to any growth because I'm fighting this like tidal force. And I have to be much more aggressive. So I think, I think the passage of time plays a role there.
0: And becomes a team player. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of teams, I thought one of the really interesting aspects of your biography is the role he played as kind of an institution builder at the University of Chicago. You know, we call it the Chicago school that had to be made and forged and funded. One thing we like to do on the podcast is kind of note the infrastructure and institutions and pipelines of money and talent on the right. Could you just, because the Volcker Fund appeared again and again in your book, what was the Volcker Fund? And kind of how did it fund the various projects that Friedman and others had at the University of Chicago?
2: Yeah, the Volcker Fund is fascinating. Actually, it would, it would be a good study just on that alone. So it starts with a furniture business in Kansas City. It's a charity that originally is you know supposed to support local initiatives. Then the founder of the business passes control of the charitable foundation to his nephew, Harold Lufnow. And now is one of the many small businessmen in America who reads Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom when it's published in 1946. And I don't know if he actually reads the whole thing or he reads the Reader's Digest or the pamphlet, but he's swept away by this argument. And so Hayek's argument that, you know, unless we change course, the federal government will grow and grow and grow and sort of recreate all the dangers and pitfalls of totalitarianism. And eventually, you know, Hayek basically says there will be no democracy if the state continues to grow. That lands in the United States, right when people are trying to decide, there's a debate about what should happen to the wartime government, like what should happen to the wartime regulations, the rent control. And so it's translated into the American context as a sort of defense of the small business owner who's feeling put upon by New Deal regulations, and the sort of all the interventions that have happened over the course of the New Deal. And so many of them love this book and take it as gospel and use it to kind of push their own political agenda. So now gets this book. He then goes to see Hayek speak, and he says, I want you to write basically a popular version of it for the United States. And so Hayek's like, oh, very interesting. And he basically keeps now talking well enough to say, sure, we could do a book, but what we really need to do is to study the conditions in the United States to research them and understand them to sort of make a plan to go forward. And I could direct a project like this and I could direct it at the university of Chicago. And in the meantime, he's got Henry Simons working the administration. Simons is best friends with Aaron director who is Milton Friedman's wife's brother. And they all went to graduate school together. They're very close.
1: Sounds like a lot of fun hanging out with those folks.
2: (laughs) A lot of um, nerdy econ jokes. I would say if you like nerdy econ jokes, this would be a hot spot. So they sort of concoct this whole scheme and Hayek is another, you know, institution builder par excellence. And he also wants himself to get to the United States.
1: So he can get a divorce and marry his cousin.
2: Yes. <laughs> it just it really never ends. So long story short, they get all this funding for what's going to be an Institute of Political Economy at Chicago. And it's going to bring everybody back. The band's going to get back together. Along the way, there's a hiccup in the funding. And that seems to be the episode that plunges Henry Simons into a suicidal depression from which he does not emerge and so Simons kills himself director is eventually hired to Chicago at the same time that Friedman is hired to Chicago so they basically arrive and they're given this project that Simons and Hyatt cooked up but Simons isn't there and so they sort of don't really know what to do with it and they're supposed to have these meetings and they're kind of figuring out what to do and eventually director kind of gets back on his feet And they use it to fund some studies of monopoly from graduate students. And eventually, Director gets Hayek to come and take up a position at the University of Chicago, not in the economics department. And Freeman does not want him in the economics department because he doesn't really think Hayek is a good economist, although he shares his political values. And so Hayek shows up and eventually figures out that Aaron Director has become a very effective teacher at the University of Chicago Law School, and he's become particularly effective at introducing economic analysis and the sort of free market critique to law students. And he's supposed to be writing this popular Americanized road to serfdom. Like they eventually convince the funders to pay director to write this book. Director can't write a damn thing. He never finishes dissertation. He publishes like one article. And so Hayek shows up and basically figures out this is never going to happen. But director's doing good work, and over the next couple of years convinces the fund instead of trying to get this book, instead, they should underwrite the training of economics at the University of Chicago Law School. And so, director ends up with a journal and with fellowships and with the ability to hire and cultivate and train. And I should say, similar intellectual movement is happening at other law schools, not funded by the Volcker Foundation, which is this very ideological libertarian focus. But there's also a law and economics movement at Harvard. There's a couple other places because economics is a rising discipline. And a lot of other disciplines are finding it useful to kind of bring these tools in. But the Volcker money really establishes this very strong beachhead at Chicago that then has the force multiplier of Friedman being in the economics department, Hayek teaching in the committee on social thought, so doing kind of more philosophical seminars. Eventually, Alan Wallace, who's another friend of Friedman's from grad school, ends up at the business school. Then George Stigler ends up at the business school. Like <laughs> The whole band gets back together. They're all in Chicago. And that is really where they start doing this thinking about how do we develop the case for capitalism in the second half of the 20th century? Like How do we respond to the growth in the state? How do we respond to the New Deal institutions and ideas that have now really become part of the American landscape? And so- Law and economics will be one answer to those questions.
1: Because we want to get to some like signal moments in his sort of public career and maybe how he's remembered and maybe especially remembered less fondly by the left. I think we should move on to, I think, the civil rights moment and maybe the way to get into this is to talk about Friedman and Goldwater. Of course, their bond was not solidified over their opposition to civil rights or anything like that. They probably shared a kind of sense of being opposed to racial segregation in their personal lives, but saw federal action as infringing on liberties that they held dear, including the liberties of people who are racially prejudiced. But before we start talking about Friedman's response to the civil rights moment, what attracted Friedman to Goldwater in the first place?
2: So I think Friedman saw Goldwater as potentially a kind of voice for the ideas that he thought were important. The first letter he ever writes to Goldwater is a criticism. It's about capital control. So in order to maintain the quasi-gold standard of the mid-century, you couldn't just take whatever money you wanted out of the country. You had to kind of register back and forth. And so Friedman sends Goldwater this letter and says, like, you're a fellow defender of free enterprise. So why are you supporting these capital controls? Because this is a way for the state to control citizens. And Goldwater kind of blows them off. And Friedman, I'm guessing, has read A Conscience of a Conservative, which comes out in 1960. And he's probably gleaned enough of the libertarian flavor of that book to think that, hmm, this could be someone of interest.
1: But he doesn't know that actually Brent Bozell
2: wrote that book. Right. He doesn't know. He doesn't <laughs> know. And I mean, the other thing I will say is that Freeman has the ability, as we talked about before, say he did read Conscience of a Conservative, he pulls out the libertarian message and he doesn't get caught up in the kind of more traditional values, invocations, in a way that, say, Ayn Rand would be frustrated by that. You know, So they have this perfunctory exchange of letters. And then Goldwater suddenly, as he's starting to run for office and Friedman has become known as a public figure with the monetary history, suddenly it's very warm and really wants to reconnect with him. And so that's how they get mm. connected. But I want to just back up before we jump into Goldwater and just say one theme that's really important that, that I think adds a wrinkle to the Friedman-Goldwater episode is that in the 1950s and the early 1960s, Friedman really considers himself as a warrior against what he calls the crackpot conservatives of the radical right fringe. And that means for him in the 1950s, McCarthy and what he calls a McCarthy McCormick wing of the Republican Party. And so he sees in them a continuation of anti-Semitism, isolationism, and he's really argues vociferously against that wing. And he sees himself as an alternative. In the 1960s, it's the John Birch Society, which he's his conspiratorial, populist, and he makes his first overtures to William Buckley when Buckley, you know, criticizes the Birch Society. So Friedman's really consciously trying to set himself up as a different type of conservative and trying to push out this sort of darker anti-Semitic conspiratorial sides of the right. He's kind of trying to rebrand conservatism around a University of Chicago economics professor, you know, credentialed, pleasant, smiley, friendly. And I just want to say all that because that sort of breaks down when he gets to Goldwater and civil rights. And that's why I think it's really significant and also maybe not predictable.
1: It comes up even before Goldwater is running for president in 64. In this book that Rose Friedman compiles from lectures and other kind of ephemera that Friedman has put down in the 1950s called Capitalism and Freedom in 1962, they do address the civil rights moment. Could you just sort of characterize for us what Friedman's position on civil rights legislation was at that moment?
2: So he will always start with a kind of ritual invocation that he's not prejudiced, that prejudice is wrong. And then he will basically move to a sort of market analysis of prejudice. And in large part, he's drawing on the work of Gary Becker, who is his most famous and accomplished graduate student. And Becker analyzes discrimination in terms of taste and in terms of price. And so The Freedman's basically say, well, discrimination is a taste. And if you're going to go in the market and be motivated by this taste, you're going to pay a price, which is that you are going to suffer because you're basing your decisions on this illogical taste instead of what is the most suitable person for the job or the best business decision. And so you'll pay a price for it. That's kind of the sanction. And the hope seems to be that over time, people will conclude that racism isn't a price they want to pay, and that will be the mechanism for it to be eliminated. And it sounds highly (laughs) implausible. So I guess part of what I think is like, well, how did he think this is plausible? And I think part of it comes back to his Jewish identity again. This is a man who has lived through a time when Jews would not be hired as university professors. And lo and behold, he's now a tenured professor at Chicago. So the reason Arthur Burns was teaching him at Rutgers is because nobody was going to hire Arthur Burns before World War II as a professor of economics. After World War II, Burns is a professor, tenured professor at Columbia. So he's seen this, what he thinks of as a sort of market mechanism where American academia concludes it doesn't make sense to discriminate against Jewish intellectuals. And so that's kind of his model. I don't think it's it maps. Well, I don't think it's realistic to
1: the black experience.
2: Right. Does not match the black experience.
1: I think that's a, it's not an uncommon trajectory for even much more liberal minded Jewish intellectuals of the 20th century who said, well, the Jews made it in America. Why shouldn't the blacks? And that's just a total elision and sort of a historical way of understanding completely different. Trajectories and not justifiable, you know, as an intellectual exercise, but understandable as a sort of personal fixation. Like, I made it, why don't why don't you just make it the same way we did?
2: And then it gets the gloss of this economic analysis on top of it. And I mean, Friedman's yeah. not a historian. He hasn't really spent a lot of time in the segregated South. He hasn't thought deeply about these questions. And so basically they just take Becker and they summarize Becker's dissertation in like five pages and they kind of move on.
1: Can I read from how they summarize Becker's position from the book? You have a quote that I, I think really (laughs) it does just underscore how, ill-equipped this way of thinking about discrimination was to the actual problem of racial prejudice and anti-blackness in America. This is the quote from Rose and, and Milton Friedman. It is hard to see that discrimination can have any meaning other than a taste of others that one does not share. Is there any difference in principle between the taste that leads a householder to prefer an attractive servant to an ugly one and the taste that leads another to prefer a Negro to a white or a white to a Negro, except that we sympathize and agree with the one taste and may not with the other? I mean, even on its own terms, to be like, well, some people like pretty servants and that's acceptable, but some people prefer white or prefer black servants and that has to be acceptable too. It really just does to our contemporary era seem myopic along many different dimensions.
2: Yeah. What's interesting when Friedman connects with Goldwater is, first of all, it's kind of a tenuous connection. The Goldwater campaign is pretty disorganized. They don't really have an official agenda. And basically, the media starts figuring out that, Goldwater and Friedman talk. Therefore, Friedman is some type of representative of Goldwater. There's not any real coordination, as one might expect in the kind of modern political campaign. But what's really interesting is that Friedman starts going out of his way to explain Goldwater's stance on civil rights and specifically Goldwater's opposition to the pending bill in 1964, which is passed, the Civil Rights Act, which will outlaw using the interstate commerce clause will outlaw discrimination in public accommodations, restaurants, you know, segregated bus stations, different water fountains. all of that will be swept away. And Goldwater opposes that because he, he fears, as he says, is it will create a like, quote, police force of mammoth dimensions or something like this. And Friedman just picks up this baton and starts talking about it. And he really doesn't need to, You know, he's the economic advisor. There's many other things he could talk about. He could talk about taxes. He could talk about free trade, you know, everything. And the civil rights bill is not really in his wheelhouse, but he brings it up in his speeches many times. So it's clearly something he cares about and wants to, you know, share his views on.
1: I mean, there's that amazing passage you point to when he compares race neutral hiring laws, the Fair Employment Practices Committee, which sort of prefigured anti-discrimination laws to the Nuremberg laws.
2: I just, I really, I still haven't been able to figure out the connection there.
1: (laughs) It seems to be something like if you're identifying Black Americans as needing some kind of special help from the government, then you're implying that they're somehow deficient in the way that the Nuremberg laws explicitly define Jews as deficient, but it beggars belief and credulity to suggest that Nuremberg laws designed to disenfranchise Jews are the same as laws that are designed to enfranchise Black Americans.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the only way you could could connect it is just, I think he believes that laws should be universal. And if you start targeting towards any type of ethnic group, maybe that to him is like the beginning of the slippery slope. But it's not really clear. I mean, the, it's convoluted. All of it's convoluted in capitalism and freedom. And they're they're moving very quickly, treating these issues with great superficiality, I would say.
1: I mean, and perhaps related to this is the school vouchers moment here, where, of course, it's been something that he advocates for, people being able to take the money from the state that would go to their kids' public schooling and, and use it to put them in a private school. This policy solution gets taken up really actively by segregationists once school integration is a is a federal policy you know that wasn't his intention with the policy but it did happen And it's not clear to me that he ever sort of said, Well, this isn't what I hoped would happen.
2: No, he doesn't. In fact, he comes to endorse it. And you can see that in the footnotes in Capitalism and Freedom. And there's also a whole correspondence. There's someone who's editing this piece for publication and kind of is like, Hey, do you want to change anything because of what's happened? He's like, No. And they go back and forth and back and forth. And he's aware that Southern segregationists are taking up the reform. And he says nothing against it. The closest he comes, he basically manages to choke out, I'm not a segregationist. And, you know, I'd rather have integration than not have integration. But it's very begrudging.
1: They're both evils. Forced segregation and forced integration are both evils.
2: Yeah. And then he's saying, you know, well, maybe it'll underwrite a universe where there'll be integrated schools and all black schools and all white schools, and that would be fine. And just kind of stepping back, I feel like this is a really important moment. And it's not just, Hey, this Jewish guy born in 1913 was bigoted in a way that we aren't today. Like that, I mean, sure. But there's a contest and an argument going on vociferously and viciously in the 1960s between moderate Republicans who are the most efficacious defenders of civil rights. They introduce the legislation, they have the votes because at this point, the Democrats are captured by the Southern wing of the party. And there are some supporters of civil rights, but there's many more. Southern Democrats who are arch segregationists. And so there's this real fight going on between moderate Republicans and between the Goldwater forces. And in the end of the day, it's the Goldwater activists who win. And they win because they fight really dirty. And they push moderates out. And they take over the civil rights issue. And they make opposition or go slow on civil rights, the signature Republican stance, when it had been the opposite before. And so you see, Friedman, this sort of most powerful intellectual figurehead, he casts his lot with the Goldwater forces and with those who are saying civil rights is not a Republican issue. And so, for me, this is really consequential. I'm not saying that one man makes all the difference, but you imagine if Friedman said, "No, I'm a moderate Republican, and civil rights has been a part of the Republican platform forever, and it should stay. And here's how we can make it compatible with individual freedom." You know, he's a very powerful arguer and advocate. And so for me, this is just a huge missed opportunity. It's a it's a loss. It's a tragic decision. And it's also out of line with his earlier efforts to fight the Birchers, to fight McCarthy. And so I feel it's very consequential and a place where things could have fallen out a different way that I think could have led us to a better place overall.
0: I mean, Jennifer, I want to push you on this a little bit. Do you think this was kind of a representative? intellectual mistake by Friedman. Meaning, you know, when you think about even his style of economics, I was struck by your line on page 45 of the book. There was something distinctive about Chicago price theory. Students often greeted it as revealed truth, describing their encounter as a conversion experience. There was for many a clear dividing line before price theory and after. And do you think there's something kind of like abstract, about this mode of economic reasoning that like, sure, we can apply price theory to racism, you know, and segregation and things like that, that it was kind of a sin of over intellectualism and kind of rendering these visceral experiences that uh, many Americans faced in the kind of tidier language of economics.
2: I think there's a lack of historical context and a lack of moderating in this particular way. I guess I find it instructive to kind of contrast him with the case of George Schultz who is someone who's he's actually educated at MIT but he comes to Chicago and he becomes very close to Friedman and they will be politically close for the rest of their lives. You know, so Schultz has all the same free market orientation that Friedman has, but he's spent time in the south and he's done these labor negotiations where the black members of his team are not allowed to stay in the same hotel. And so he emerges as a supporter of affirmative action. He's like, look, we need to do something different in this case. And so he's able to kind of set aside whatever abstract principles about freedom from government interference that he would hold to in other cases and say, this is different. And Friedman doesn't do that. I don't think he's really able to do that. And it twists him up. He ends up coming to these very strange conclusions. So there's a series of letters he writes. He is convinced his son is being discriminated against. And so he's he's kind of trying to rectify the situation. Even as he's doing that, he says, I don't question the right of people to be anti-Semitic. You know, just you shouldn't do it in this particular group. Just
1: don't do it to me or my son.
2: Right. Just don't do it to me or my son. I do think it is a representative intellectual mistake. It's part of the power having an abstract system that you can subsume so much of human experience and you can have these insights into it, but you can also miss so much. And I think this is sort of a clear case of that. Yeah.
1: Well, speaking of what I consider to be another representative Intellectual mistake. I thought your chapter on Friedman in Chile was super interesting. A lot of our listeners may sort of have in their mind the idea of like the Chicago boys in Chile, sort of architects of the coup against Allende, installing this dictator, Pinochet, and that Milton Friedman is right at the center of this. I think your book is somewhat of a correction to that narrative.
2: Yeah. So I ended up doing basically a chapter on this because I wanted to kind of dig into the backstory and set up the context because Friedman's life does become caught up in this bigger 20th century conflict of socialism versus capitalism or communism versus capitalism, U.S. power, imperialism, all of that. So I really wanted to kind of lay out the background. And it is a bit of a corrective just because there has been a lot of misinformation about what Friedman's role was. So briefly put, there's a long-standing connection between universities in Chile and the economics department at Chicago. And it was set up by some interested faculty, funded by U.S. government funds that did a lot of work in many different areas to kind of generate knowledge. And the idea was that Chile's economy was running under import substitution industrialization. And there really were not a very developed economics profession to speak of. And no economists in Chile had been trained in the kind of American approach to economics. So for many decades, Chilean students would come to the University of Chicago. They studied mainly with Arnold Harberger, who was an expert in kind of international trade. They would take Friedman's classes. I think he only advised one of the many who came. And then when these students went back to Chile... They had been really transformed and changed by the Chicago experience, and they sort of clustered together in a social network that became known as the Chicago Boys. And they were not very popular or influential because all of the economic ideas they had went completely against the grain of how Chileans approached running the economy. There were strong connections between business and the state, and so the Chicago Boys were just kind of outliers, Now, Allende was elected, I think it was three years in, he was overthrown by the coup led by Pinochet. And when Allende was overthrown, inflation in Chile was 600% annually. So I think it's just like a very important piece of context that sometimes is left out of the story.
1: There was some incompetence in the sort of economic governance of that country before the coup. Doesn't justify the coup, but let's go on.
2: No, anyhow. So it's down to about 300% in the following year but things really still aren't working. And it's at that moment that the Chicago boys are sort of able to get the ear of Pinochet and say, look, we have a plan and we can do things differently. And we think it will really work. Now, it is true that this plan, it became known as El Adrio, the brick. It's a very big document, which basically summarizes neoclassical economics and market consensus. This had been floating around during the run-up to the coup, but it was not the justification. It wasn't the founding document of the coup. The coup came from a, a variety of different sources, but was not done in the service of let's erect free market capitalism. So at any rate, eventually they are able to say, it's been a year, nothing has really changed. We've got a plan for how to change it. And it's at this point that Friedman comes to the country. And he basically comes to sort of advertise and solidify this policy. And the policy is how do we get 300% inflation down and how do we create an economy that will generate growth? And so he comes and I was able to find some documents that I don't think other historians had found, like a travel log where he describes his six days in Chile. He meets with a central bank, you know, he meets with this other rich guy, he goes here, he goes there, he speaks to The regime. He does meet with Pinochet. He has like a 45 minute audience with him. He basically says what he says in most of his public appearances, which is you've got to reduce the amount of money that you're printing, you've got to liberalize your economy, you've got to move away from this ISI, you've got to reprivatize. Kind of the basic toolkit that pretty much any American economist, except for one who was a socialist or a communist, would have said this. This is not. Super novel set of interpretations. And basically, they all say to him, Isn't this going to hurt too bad? Isn't it going to be too painful to try to end inflation? And he says, Yes, it's going to be painful. You have to have some relief programs, but you have to do it quick. The quicker you do it, the sooner you'll be over it. And you're not going to get anywhere with this type of inflation rate. And it's interesting because in the United States, when he was also advising the presidents on how to bring down inflation. He was a gradualist. You say slowly, right? But in the United States we're talking six, nine percent inflation, maybe max. When you've got three hundred percent, he's like, you have to really change up the game. And so he makes all these speeches. In his travelogue, it's similar to the civil rights thing in that he's kind of not registering a lot of what's happening. He's like, oh, all the soldiers have guns. They seem like police officers, except they have machine guns. And I think he just kind of writes it off as like, this is South America. They do things differently here. And then after that, he is you know, accused of being a supporter of the regime. And so this goes on to sort of dog him the rest of his life. I think sometimes, especially American listeners and readers, are approaching this through like a domestic politics framework where like if you're on the council of economic advisors of like George Bush it's because like you agree with George Bush and you support his programs or like Biden like you politically agree with Biden and you want to persuade him of course of your particular ideas but you're aligned and so there's a way in which Freeman going to advise Pinochet has been like interpreted as if he joined like Pinochet's council of economic advisors because he was aligned with You know, his autocratic rule, when in fact, it's better understood as a practice throughout the Cold War of American economists going to many different countries, including often socialist countries, and offering their advice, which is like, do everything different than what you're doing. The assumption that visiting Chile and talking to Pinochet equals Friedman is a supporter of the regime, that's just unwarranted.
1: Yeah, I think it really actually comes through in your book that it was the aim of the sort of Chicago boys who were trying to get some kind of imprimatur, international and even American imprimatur for the project that they were trying to implement in the country to bring Friedman, the name, the great name, Friedman to the country and sort of give a kind of serious intellectual gloss to what they were trying to accomplish. And, you know, I'm quite sympathetic to the idea that you say that sort of like it becomes a strategy of the global left to associate the coup, the thousands of people who were killed by Pinochet, the tens of thousands who were tortured, the hundreds of thousands that were forcibly displaced with Friedman, because it's easier to sort of damn the whole American global project with the name of Friedman than it is to just sort of point to Pinochet as a bad actor. But From my perspective, it does seem like a little bit, and again, maybe symptomatically so, naive of Friedman to think that going to the country at this time where a bunch of Chicago-educated graduate students were in the ministries of this new government established by a violent military coup was not going to be perceived as giving his stamp of approval to this project. I am much less sympathetic to later on him sort of describing how unfair it is that he's being tarred by his association with Pinochet, because it just kind of seems like, are you a fundamentally unsavvy political actor? Not in many ways, you know? In many, many times he's aware of how his name and the power of his public image can be used for the benefit of some kind of more crassly political project than his own economic investigations. And so I don't necessarily feel that I owe him the benefit of the doubt in this situation, especially because afterwards he does offer some defenses of the regime that seem totally unnecessary, like especially if he wants it to be just treated as well. You went to Yugoslavia, you you know, you went to Eastern Bloc countries, That doesn't mean you approve of the regime. But, you know, then he does give speeches where he talks about how Allende was threatening to bring about totalitarian rule of the left, that the the sort of welfare state in Chile represented, quote, extortion and coercion at its very center, because in order to do good, the welfare state must use force to take people's money away from them. And when, when I was reading this part of the book, I wrote in the margins and I was almost screaming like, "Okay, if taxation is coercion, what about helicopter rides? (laughs) You know, what about torture? Isn't that coercion? I mean, it just seems like a potentially constitutive, but certainly unacceptable blind spot in his part to not see how this all might tarnish the kind of economic agenda that he had for America and for the globe.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do think it's an overreach and it, it didn't serve him well to say the Allende government is an example of the welfare state. Because it's not. I mean, there were massive expropriations of private property. 90% of the banking sector was taken over by the state, which is how you get 600% inflation in three years. And the expropriations were done very rapidly. And Nayende was actually in an intellectual movement. It wasn't pure Marxist in which there are stages of development before the ground is ready for workers revolution the INA take on this was you have to do it fast and you have to push through and so he he moved fast he didn't have a huge mandate and a lot of people left the country because of the way the expropriations were done so you had nobody to run the state owned companies and those were the ones that had to be propped up by money printing so so none of this is a welfare state this is like its own thing so just as I don't think the socialist movement should hang its hat on Allende, it's also completely inaccurate to say, like, Allende is the welfare state. This is not. It's his own thing. So so there's that. That's definitely a, an oversimplification. And that's Friedman in his polemic, you know, I call like the kind of decadent Friedman. On the question of whether he should have gone, I think one question is to say, like, okay, you're the world expert on inflation. And your students ask you to come to a country where there's 300% inflation to help them solve the problem. And so your choice is, okay, yes, I'll come, or no, I won't come because if I come, I could be construed as supporting this regime and that would be bad for my reputation. You know, So I think it's legitimate for him to decide, like, I will do more good by coming and by actually helping them fix this problem and then making that trade off.
1: I don't know. I don't know, because you say he's, like at this moment, Pinochet is a pariah, right? And so his arriving does seem to give some amount of legitimacy to this state, to this nascent project. And I understand the motivation. I'm not compelled by the justification. Here's another question. This is something I didn't even really remember about the sequence of events, because the reason this becomes such a huge event in Friedman's career is that he gets the Nobel Prize 76? Three weeks before that, a major critic of the Pinochet regime, Latelier, who was a supporter of Yende, who was forced out of the country, is killed by a bomb in Washington, DC by Operation Condor, the sort of global terrorist campaign the Pinochet government implements to try to snuff out renegade exiles and dissidents. So this guy is killed. And it's only several weeks after he had written this big piece for the Nation magazine, conflating Friedman with the coup. And then several weeks later, Friedman gets the Nobel Prize. And as a result, the Nobel Prize is seen by leftists and humanitarians of various kinds around the globe as sort of being like this moment where the global north is like giving its imprimatur, its approval to the Pinochet project and the coup and the violence that came in its wake, which is not fair to Friedman, right? And I I understand his annoyance with the fact that his great moment is being tarred by his association with this project that he was really only associated with for six days in Santiago. But does he ever like say something denouncing this assassination? Like imagine how powerful it would have been for him to accept the Nobel Prize and say, like, and it's awful that this regime that I am associated with has just murdered a dissident on American soil. Yeah. I mean, I know I'm like, I'm wishcasting here. But you know, you did the same thing when we were talking about about civil rights. So that this is where I become not sympathetic.
2: No, he didn't really use his platform in this way. He sent letters at the behest of Amnesty International and others. He would send letters to Pinochet, but I don't know that he ever contemplated denouncing him, and I don't know that he would have thought that would have had any effect. I think there's definitely still something to be said and criticism to be leveled. It's just a lot of it is leveled just without knowledge of what actually happened. And then I think it, it becomes a distraction from more substantive questions, you know, about like what actually happened in Chile and like, what do we expect of our public figures? And is it okay to offer advice to a regime if you think it will benefit its people, but you don't want to legitimate it? So I think it's tricky.
1: In your final chapter, you talk about his legacy and a question of whether he'll be remembered as an economist, as a political figurehead, or as a philosopher of freedom. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about how we remember him. How do you think that he is remembered or that he should be?
2: So I think he will be remembered mostly as a representative of 20th century conservatism and its economic components. And I think you know what makes American conservatism distinctive is that it does incorporate this libertarian pro-capitalist endorsement of creative destruction that most other conservative movements in other nations consider anathema, right? Because capitalism is so disruptive. So I think he'll be re- remembered as really encapsulating that he is still remembered as an economist and i you know i talk about this in some detail in the book a lot of his ideas have been sort of absorbed into the economics mainstream not in their exact technical details which i think isn't to be expected but absorbed into a lot of different ways that macroeconomics is taught the way inflation is understood certainly been very influential in central bank practice Although no one's targeting the money stock, the evolution out of that has been inflation targeting and frameworks for analysis. So I think that will persist. But I think it's going to be the kind of political economy, the idea of using market incentives and market structures to achieve social goals instead of the state. I think that would be like my quickest one-line summary of what his intellectual program was all about. And I think we're at a point of seeing that's not the one-size-fits-all answer to social problems, but it's a tool that I think is like in the toolbox and I don't think it will ever be taken out. And so I think he sort of laid that in there. Like when we're trying to design a policy, we're trying to address a social problem, what would it look like if we tried to use market forces? Or what would it look like if instead of going right away to a state program or a grant, We did something different, right? With poverty. What if instead of food stamps, we gave people cash? What if instead of putting more money into public education, we let some of that money go to private education? You know, these types of things, I think these are like structures of thought that he designed and popularized and sort of passed into our collective consciousness. And they're going to be there for a good long time.
0: What would you say, you know, being immersed in his work for over a decade, what were his biggest blind spots? What were the places where you thought he kind of failed as a public intellectual or moral witness of some kind?
2: So I think it, it has to do with the assumption of rationality that other people would act in rational ways. I mean, if you pressed him, he would say, these assumptions are good in the aggregate because if we look at groups of people, this is how they act, as if they're maximizing their utility. So he's aware that this is a construct. But then I think when you zoom into the way human lives are lived, he often missed that sort of historical particularity. And I think our discussion on civil rights is, is probably the sharpest place you see that is missing. He's just not really understanding the sort of lived historical experience of being Black in America because it's not part of his framework, which is universalist. So I think the universalism can be too flattening to actual experience. And then I also think the optimism... I mean, it's part of his power to be optimistic, but it also, like, not everything is optimistic. Not everything is going to work out for the best, and being too committed to that, I think, can just mean shutting your eyes to what's happening.
1: Yeah. Related to this, there was a moment in the book where you described a a criticism that John Kenneth Galbraith made of him. I think it must have been in the 60s. And he said something like, Friedman is more of a, quote, romantic artist, Than an economist. And you sort of treated it as this sort of like disparaging throwaway line. But I was struck by that. And I wondered, what did he mean by that romantic artist? And could we actually think of Friedman productively as more of a romantic and an artist in some dimensions of his public life?
2: You know, I think Galbraith was probably talking about capitalism and freedom. And it does have a little bit of that 60s vibe of kind of sticking it to the man and the the liberationist ethos that will be unleashed when we all do our own thing. And I think that is a chord in American culture that he hit very successfully. Although I have to, again, note, he did it with Rose. I'm not sure he did it on his own. <laughs> it might even have just been Rose who hit that chord. So I think there is this kind of romance of the unfettered self. is is very American. And I think Friedman was able to take that idea and say, it actually has economic consequences or it has economic meaning and it can be explained in this more abstract way, and it can be translated into politics and policy. This kind of dream of, you know, inner freedom and the kind of soul expressing itself. All of this can also be a politics and a political economy. So, and that probably is what will endure of his work because we're not necessarily reading Keynes to figure out what the government should do. We're reading it as a moment of kind of human consciousness and awareness and a massive shift in our thinking. And I believe that Freeman stands in the same way. He's in some ways the counterpoint to Keynes and someone else will come along and be the counterpoint to him.
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good place to end it. What do you think, Matt?
0: Yeah, shall we wrap it up? Yeah. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Matt. This was a real pleasure.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, listeners. Catch you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.